Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. On this episode of Newt's World... Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. D-Day has a very special meaning for me. On D-Day, my own son graduated from West Point. On the very day he was graduating, these men came here, British and our other allies, Americans, to storm these beaches for one purpose only, not to gain anything for ourselves, not to fulfill any ambitions that America had for conquest, but just to preserve freedom, systems of self-government in the world. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. You and I and our government must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. We cannot mortgage the material assets of our grandchildren 
without risking the loss also of their political and spiritual heritage. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. Hi, this is Newt. Due to the virus, I'm recording from home, so you may notice a difference in audio quality. This is part two in our three-part The Immortals Dwight David Eisenhower series, and I'll talk about Eisenhower's extraordinary leadership during World War II. In part three, I will be joined by President Eisenhower's granddaughter, Susan Eisenhower, on the eve of the dedication to Eisenhower's memorial on the Washington Mall. Susan's new book is How Ike Led, The Principles Behind Eisenhower's Biggest Decisions. We are continuing our Newt's World series on the Immortals with part two about Dwight David Eisenhower. Part one carried Eisenhower from childhood through West Point to his service in World War I and between the wars, and then his development in World War II up through the landing at Normandy. It was an extraordinary career already, and he clearly had become one of the most powerful, important people in the Western world rising from having worked in Salinas, Kansas for two years at the local creamery before he got accepted to West Point. He was the classic American story of the 20th century of the hardworking good guy who, after all, had as his slogan, I like Ike, because he was really, in many ways, very accessible to soldiers and very concerned about them and identified with them as people like himself remarkably different from, say, General Douglas MacArthur, who saw himself clearly as an aristocratic general who was fortunate enough to have soldiers to work for him, but he was in charge. Ike was a much more inclusive person, and we rejoin him with the American and British and Canadian forces having landed in Normandy, which I want to remind you is the most complicated single thing humans have ever done. When you realize that all this was being done without computers, without cell phones, and they were literally organizing this enormous movement of men, tremendous combat power, everything from paratroopers to battleships to people landing on the shores to thinking through what the logistics supplies have to be. An enormously difficult and complex thing, and one which was a close-run thing. If the weather had changed the wrong way, it might have been a disaster. If the Germans had followed Rommel's plan, which was putting their armored forces very close to the front, it might have been a disaster. But luckily for us, it wasn't. And it wasn't in part because it was a very smart landing. It wasn't just courageous people rushing ashore. But the Allies did everything they could to convince the Germans that Normandy was a feint and the real landing was going to occur north of there at Calais. And Hitler bought it totally and insisted on keeping the bulk of his armor up around Cali for days and days and days while the Allies built up the beachhead at Normandy. Eisenhower had been a part of this and had thought it through. And one of the side stories that tells you a lot about Ike is that his best combat general was George Patton. But Patton had um, temper and Patton had a tendency to shoot his mouth off. And so in Sicily during the campaign there, he'd gotten very frustrated And he actually slapped a soldier who was suffering from what we would now call PTSD, but back then it was called battle fatigue. 
and Patton decided actually he just needed to be shocked into getting back into action, called him a coward, and the guy just broke down, and the doctors and the nurses were horrified. The story eventually broke in a column back in the U.S., became an enormous storm among the politicians, and Patton was forced to apologize publicly to his entire unit and to tell them how sorry he was he had done it, that it was the wrong thing to do. He hated it, but he understood that he had no choice. If he had not apologized, they were going to relieve him of his command. And Eisenhower then was communicating with George Marshall, chief staff of the army, and said to Marshall, this is our best combat commander. We are someday going to break out of Normandy. When we do, we're going to want somebody who cuts and slashes and moves rapidly. Nobody's as good at that as Patton. If the political pressure is so great that we have to dump him, we'll dump him. We'll figure out a way around it. And Marshall came back and said, no, I'll take the heat. You keep Patton. So Eisenhower didn't just keep Patton. Eisenhower created an entire phony army built around Patton further north in Britain, gave them all sorts of radio capabilities. And all day long, this totally phony army was broadcasting and radioing back and forth, sending out signals about how much equipment they needed. They built phony airfields. They built phony tanks out of wood. They designed it so that the Germans would believe, because the Germans agreed with the assessment that Patton was our best combat general. And so they wanted them to think that Patton was going to land at Calais and that therefore the Patton Army was the real offensive, even though it didn't exist. And this literally helped us get to shore and helped us keep the Germans totally preoccupied with the wrong place. Now, in the same moment, to show you again what Ike had to deal with, Patton gives a speech and talks about it being the future of the British and American people to rule the world. This is a speech to a local ladies group. He just can't help himself. And so, of course, there's another big uproar about Patton describing Americans and British dominating the planet. Patton is called in and is told in no uncertain terms, you do one more stupid thing like this and you're going home. No matter how badly we need you, we cannot take how often you are publicly stupid. And Patton was very contrite. He had a pretty good ability to suck up to authority when he had to. And so he really whined and whimpered. Eisenhower said, all right, Georgie, I'm going to cover for you. Just try to not get me in more trouble. So Patton is sitting up there getting really frustrated because after you land at Normandy, remember, Normandy, as big as it is, is the beginning. You now have to reinforce the troops. You have to move inland. And we discovered a couple of very hard things, which took much more time than we thought it would. One was that they had hedgerows, which didn't show up when you send in airplanes to take aerial photographs. You kind of saw them, but you had no idea what they really were. The hedgerows, the bocage they're called, in Normandy were enormous. They were 10, 12, 14 feet tall. They were extraordinarily thick. Uh, a tank could not drive through them. The farm fields would have an open field for planting things, and then they'd have a hedgerow to stop the wind. And so you could literally fight one field at a time with the German machine guns and the German anti-tank guns buried in the hedgerows, and you had to take them out. Eventually, some bright young sergeant figured out, a guy with good mechanical skill, how to build a tank. But this was an inch by inch. It was the opposite of what we wanted to do. And it terrified Churchill because it began to remind him of World War I when the British and the French had bogged down in trench warfare and had lost so many people 
fighting inch by inch. And so you had the pressure of the hedgerows. You also had the fact that the Wehrmacht, the German army, was consistently the best defensive army in the war. Whether they fought the Russians or the Americans or the British or the Canadians or the Poles, didn't matter who they fought. They routinely caused more casualties than they took. They had an extraordinary ability to reorganize in combat. And if they lost part of a unit, they could reconstitute it in a matter of minutes and a flexibility that no other army at the time had. So we found that they were very tenacious on defense and they were making us pay inch by inch. Part of the landing that was being led by the British got bogged down in the city of Cahan and just literally spent days and days and days fighting building to building. Again, not what they had planned, but it turned out that cities can absorb troops and the people on defense in a city can use every bombed out building as a defensive position. You had the real huge problem that General Montgomery, who had been the hero of El Alamein, and was seen by the British as their best field marshal, somebody that couldn't be touched politically because he was the one person who the British had confidence in. But he also recognized that given all of the losses of World War I, and given the fact that Britain had been in the war since September of 1939, and we didn't enter the war seriously until 1942, that the British simply had had their manpower drained. And so they had to be much more careful and try not to lose as many people. Americans had this huge manpower pool. We were building an army that was enormous, going to very rapidly be much, much bigger than the British. So he's trying to fight carefully, which means slowly, and he's not breaking through in his sector. Meanwhile, in the South, where Bradley is, Bradley decides, the American commander, we're going to use massive air power and bring in B-17s and B-24s, and we're going to bomb the German line so intensely that we'll be able to basically go right through it. Well, an enormous tragedy. The bombers had got the wrong direction, came in the wrong way, killed a lot of Americans, including a four-star general, General Leslie McNair, who was the number two guy in the army. And again, things just weren't quite working. Meanwhile, Patton, of course, is going crazy because he's still stuck in England, not allowed to fight. Eisenhower is trying to manage Churchill, manage Roosevelt, manage Montgomery, manage what's happening among the Americans with Bradley, and keep all of this stuff moving. At the same time, he's trying to get the logistics working to get gasoline and ammunition and medical supplies flowing into the continent and... In July, they have an enormous storm, which wrecks one of the major unloading facilities. And it's ironic because if Eisenhower had not gone in June, they would have been trying to land in the middle of one of the biggest storms ever to hit the French coast in the summertime. So that further slows everything down. Patton, of course, is beside himself. He wants he's so desperate to get into the fight. Finally, by just sheer weight of numbers, the Soviet army is absorbing an enormous number of Germans. So to some extent, the Soviet offensive is pulling Germans away from the West at the same time that the Americans and the British are pulling Germans away from Russia. And what's happening, of course, is Germany's beginning to realize they don't have enough troops. They've taken on too many people. They're fighting too many wars simultaneously. And so they begin to just decay from just the sheer exhaustion and the absence of enough new tanks and enough new ammunition and enough new aircraft. Our use of air power is enormous. And again, think about Eisenhower's complexity here. 
He is managing a naval force, one of the largest ever. He is managing air power. He's managing regular infantry and armor and artillery. He is managing the operations of guerrilla groups in France itself. One of the greatest challenges he has is trying to manage General de Gaulle, because General de Gaulle not only was naturally arrogant and very physically tall guy, his name after all means Charles of France. And he thought of himself that way. He thought of himself as being the personal representative of French nationalism. But in addition, de Gaulle knew that if he wasn't rigid and he wasn't tough and he wasn't protective of France, that the French would just get run over and cease to be important. This is a country which thought of itself as the Grand Nation, the great nation. And so the humiliation of having been occupied by the Germans, compounded by having the Anglo-Saxons, the Americans and the British and the Canadians, helping liberate them, de Gaulle felt he had to be a bigger pain in the neck in order to prove that France really mattered. So Ike is in the middle of managing this very complicated and arrogant and difficult personality. He is in the process of working with Churchill. An interesting example of Eisenhower's technique. Once a week, Eisenhower went to dinner with Churchill. And he would sit there and listen to Churchill for hours. They normally agreed. They normally were on the same side. They had two or three big arguments, most of which Eisenhower won. But Churchill insisted on being able to argue. Churchill was a complicated person for Eisenhower to try to manage because Churchill would get up very late in the morning. He would take a two-hour nap every afternoon, literally get in his pajamas, take a two-hour nap. And then, starting around dinner time, he would work till two in the morning. So if you're Ike and you're trying to actually run all these different administrative assignments, make all these major decisions, manage all these different personalities, keep track of what's going on in the battlefield. Once a week, you stop and you pay attention to Winston Churchill. Now, it's a great example of Eisenhower's understanding of things that matter and his understanding of human beings, because he knew if he would listen to Churchill every week, that Churchill would decide that Eisenhower was really smart because he listened to Churchill. And that meant that when Eisenhower occasionally got into some problems, Churchill was on his side. In fact, in a key moment where Eisenhower gets into a big fight with Montgomery, Churchill sides with Eisenhower against the British field marshal. And that's because Ike had paid his dues. And he was very smart about this stuff. It didn't work the same way with de Gaulle, because de Gaulle would never relax. De Gaulle would never have some sense of comradeship. De Gaulle would be the embodiment of French nationalism. And so Eisenhower on occasion had to use a very different technique with de Gaulle, which is he threatened to cut off the gasoline and the ammunition because the free French army operated only because of American logistics. And Eisenhower would occasionally remind de Gaulle that if, in fact, he got too far out of line, the entire free French army would stop because there would be no gasoline delivered and there'd be no ammunition delivered. And so he could sort of keep de Gaulle underhand but it was doubly tricky because President Franklin D. Roosevelt really disliked de Gaulle. He intuited de Gaulle's arrogance, and it just drove him crazy. So if he could have figured out a way to get rid of de Gaulle, Roosevelt would have. Eisenhower knew that was not possible, and he knew that in a lot of ways, General de Gaulle and the Free French had been very helpful. They'd been helpful on intelligence matters. They'd been helpful with sabotage during the initial phases of the landing. They provided a good bit of manpower, particularly when the second big invasion occurred in southern France, which was called Anvil, and which occurred after the Germans had basically pulled out. 
that the Free French were a significant component of the Allied forces that were liberating France. But it took this ability in Eisenhower's mind to juggle all of these different personalities. No, this is what I have to do to keep President Roosevelt happy. This is what I have to do to keep General Marshall happy. This is what I have to do to keep Churchill happy. This is what I have to do to keep de Gaulle happy. And he managed somehow to do that. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids. But I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. I've always been a strong believer in the importance of investing wisely. That's why I've personally invested in Legacy Precious Metals. At Legacy Precious Metals, they're not leaving your financial future to chance. They're on a mission to help you secure your financial future post-retirement. In partnership with them, I'm thrilled to announce the launch of the Newt Gingrich contract with America Coin. This limited edition coin is made of one ounce of 99.99% fine silver, commemorating the historic moment when, against all odds, we balanced the budget for the last time in U.S. history. This coin isn't just an investment. It's a piece of our nation's history. And now you can own it. As the holiday season approaches, it's the perfect gift. You can purchase yours today by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866 866- 484-4043, or order online at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with Five Good Things, a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app. I could spend part of the weekend relaxing because you couldn't sustain this level of intensity for four solid years without cracking. And he knew that, and he knew how to balance himself. And part of what he did in the weekends is he read Westerns. He loved Louis L'Amour novels and similar novels. 
and again, he'd grown up in Kansas. And all of the liberal intellectuals had contempt for Eisenhower. They said, he, he must be some very shallow guy to read Westerns. And Ike made the point years later, if you're doing as many difficult things as I was doing, and you're handling as many difficult problems as I was handling, you don't want to read Thucydides on the weekend. And ironically, when later, after he left the army, he became president of Columbia, he actually was translating Thucydides from the Greek, because, in fact, Eisenhower was a very smart guy. He wasn't an intellectual in the sense that the Ivy League people looked down their nose at him, but he was very, very smart, and he was very capable of reading serious books when he wasn't trying to wage total war. So we begin to break out, and they bring in Patton, and Patton launches the Third Army, and it's everything Eisenhower had hoped for, and it absolutely paid for having put up with Patton's personality. The Third Army was an armored army, which was a truck-based army, and this is one of the great examples of World War II and why we won it. The Germans had really developed blitzkrieg, which means lightning war. But other than their tanks and a very small number of mobile artillery, most of the German army still moved with horse-drawn wagons and still marched. They didn't have trucks on the scale we did, but as the country which had produced Henry Ford and which had produced General Motors, our manufacturing capacity was so enormous that by 1944, Eisenhower had an entirely mobile army that used trucks with a kind of abundance that nobody had ever dreamed of. Now, this is important for two reasons. One is it means when you finally do break out, which Patton did, you can move really fast. You can move at the speed of a truck, not the speed of a walking infantry. So the Germans who are now trying to retreat are retreating at the pace of walking, and around them there's an American army moving at the pace of a truck or a tank. And the result is that there's a huge catch of German prisoners around an area called Falaise, which is in Normandy, but a good distance from the beaches. And it would have been even better except that the British army didn't close the gap. It became known as the Falaise Gap, and probably a quarter million Germans escaped to refit and to fight later in the year. But they caught an enormous number of Germans. They had an enormous number of tanks and artillery pieces and other things that were abandoned, and Patton was running wild. And then Eisenhower faced one of his great headaches. When Patton runs wild with trucks and tanks, he burns up a lot of gasoline. Because we had not gotten enough ports open, we don't have enough gasoline. And we were delivering the gasoline by truck. They created a system called the Red Ball Express, which were just mile after mile after mile of trucks trying to catch up with Patton. And Patton, of course, is getting very frustrated. And Patton has a great idea. Why do you give me everything? And then I'll go win the war. And of course, to the north, you have the great British Field Marshal Montgomery, who has the same idea. Why do you give me everything and I'll get to win the war? And here you have Eisenhower who knows he can't stop the Americans or the American public will go crazy. And he can't starve the British or the British public will go crazy. So he somehow has to balance both of those while also taking care of the free French. And the result is that they gradually grind to a halt. That in fact, the logistics tale, and this is why people say, that amateurs study strategy and professionals study logistics because the ability to have the equipment, to have the supplies, 
to get them at the right place at the right time is central to sustaining any campaign. So he's having to divide this up for political reasons. And a lot of people who don't understand Clausewitz's argument that war is an extension of politics by other means. And as Clausewitz says, anybody who thinks you can have a council of war without having a prince in the council misunderstands the very nature of warfare. In the end, politics defines the war. So Eisenhower, in a theoretical world, if you were at a military school and you were doing an exercise, you could say, oh, I got it. Let's give all of it to George Patton and see how well he does. Let's give all of it to Montgomery and see how well he does. But in the real world, you would have Churchill going crazy if everything went to Patton, and you would have the American people and the Congress going crazy if everything went to Montgomery. So Eisenhower is forced to balance these two personalities and to give each of them a fair amount of opportunity. Now, Montgomery, who is, if anything, almost as arrogant as de Gaulle, and is very aware that he's the victor of El Alamein and he is the great field marshal, Montgomery's another example of what Eisenhower had to manage. Montgomery decides that Eisenhower is a good guy and he has a nice personality, but he doesn't understand warfare. Montgomery proposes that he be allowed to take over managing the war while Eisenhower manages the diplomacy and the politicians. Now, Eisenhower actually thought he knew a fair amount about warfare by this stage, and they have to have a meeting. To give you an example of Montgomery's arrogance, Montgomery can't leave his headquarters because he's too busy. So if Eisenhower wants to have a meeting, Eisenhower, who is the supreme commander in Europe, has to go to Montgomery's headquarters. So he does. And he brings with him Beetle Smith, who is his deputy, the implementer of all of his activities. Montgomery wants to meet only with Eisenhower, but he wants his deputy to be in the meeting, but not Beetle. And Eisenhower says, no, if you don't want Beetle in, that's fine. But then Freddie de Guinwa, who's, his, who's the Montgomery guy, he can't be in either. So they end up with Ike and Montgomery in a very small headquarters room, sitting face-to-face in two chairs, and Montgomery starts lecturing. And the more he lectures, he listens to himself and realizes how brilliant he is and how incompetent Eisenhower is, and he gets more intense and more intense and more intense. And Eisenhower's just been sitting there patiently listening to him because he understands Montgomery's personality, and he understands that this guy is very insecure, and he has to have all this bluster to prove to himself that he's really the most important guy around. So finally, Montgomery goes too far. Eisenhower calmly leans in, taps him on the knee, and says, Monty, you can't say that. I'm your commanding officer. And Montgomery, just with those few quiet words, is suddenly reminded, oh yeah, if Ike wants to fire me, they will fire me. Because the American army is now so big and its presence is so huge that there's no possibility that Churchill's going to want to fire Eisenhower. And Montgomery begins to back up and apologize. Now, Ike understood that he had managed the problem, but he hadn't solved it. This gets them off into another problem, because what you now have is like two jealous kids. The further Patton goes, the more Montgomery wants to do something brilliant. The more daring Patton is, the more daring Montgomery wants to be. And one of the tragedies of this is that Montgomery's a very good general and a terrific manager of battles. 
and proved it at El Alamein, where he defeated Rommel and the German army in Egypt. But he's not really a daring guy. He's a very methodical guy. He wants desperately to prove that he can do better than Patton. And so he comes up with a plan, which is really brilliantly captured both in a movie and in a book called The Bridge Too Far. And his plan is we're going to use paratroopers and we're going to cross the river three times, driving into the Netherlands, and we're going to capture the Great Bridge at Arnhem, and that'll put us across the Rhine River into Germany. And we're going to do all of this on a very, very short time schedule, and we're going to make it all work. And the plan is brilliantly designed. They have like 900 officers who come together for the, the final briefing, and Montgomery's one of those guys who's just a brilliant briefer. By the time he's done, you think, He's thought it all through. He understands everything. But there's a practical problem. And it's a problem that Clausewitz in his great work on war describes very well. He said that the problem with war is that everything is very simple, but the simple is very, very hard. And he said it is like trying to walk in sand that is so thick and so deep that the friction makes everything you try to do hard. And that's what happens in this case. Now, Eisenhower does everything that Montgomery wants. He gives him all of the air power. He has both the British, Polish, and the American airborne divisions. He gives him all the aircraft, so it's the largest concentration of paratroopers in history. He gives him the backing of the American army, an enormous amount of combat air power. But the phrase of the book, A Bridge Too Far, captures exactly what happened. And it's also a great case study in what's wrong with most militaries, particularly a problem with the American and British military. At the time, there were a lot of Dutch officers who had fled Holland when the Germans occupied it. None of them, not one, was asked to look at the plan for this campaign. And after the battle failed, one of them pointed out that the graduation exercise at the Dutch War College was how do you go from the Megan to Arnhem and if you took the road that was up on top of the river, you automatically failed because the road was too narrow and you could block it. If you killed a tank, you just blocked it until they got the tank out of the way. And so it was impossible to go quickly. That in fact, you had to go down close to the river in order to do that. Nobody in either the British or American army thought to ask the Dutch this. And so, of course, they did exactly what you would fail at the Dutch War College if you did it and they can't get to Arnhem. Meanwhile, in one of those really weird things that reminds you that the war is so hard and so difficult to execute, the wrong radio crystals are dropped with the Polish airborne unit, and they can't talk to the airplanes because the radios don't work. And again, as an example of the modern world, it turned out after the battle that the Dutch civilian telephone system was working, and people in Arnhem were talking by phone to people in the Megan but it never occurred to a single soldier to walk up and knock on a house and ask to use the phone. And so the radios are out. Ultimately, it's a disaster. It's also a disaster because, again, a reminder that reconnaissance, just as it was wrong in terms of the blockage, the, the great hedgerow country, the reconnaissance did not pick up that a German armored corps was resting and recuperating at Arnhem. So we were actually landing paratroopers on top of a German armored division. All those things came to bear. Ultimately, it didn't work. It was a bitter, bitter disappointment. But again, Montgomery had tried. 
You can make a case, by the way, that had he put the same amount of combat power into cleaning up the peninsula that leads up to Rotterdam, we would have been much better off because they couldn't get any supply ships into Rotterdam because the Germans still occupied the land on both sides of the river down to the ocean and it took months to dig them out. That's not what happened. We ended up in a situation where our supplies are still precarious and we've sort of run out of energy. If you look at a map of Europe, there's this enormous lunge, first to get on land, then to cross France, liberate Paris, which was a great emotional moment. And where again, Eisenhower showed his political skills because he deliberately had the Free French Army lead into Paris so that the French were liberated by the French in order to rebuild French morale, which in the long run would be very important when we got around to the Cold War and we were trying to keep France on the side of the West. I should like to address myself today to the people of Paris. Two weeks ago, French and Allied forces entered this city. We came to deliver the coup de grace to the last remaining elements of the enemy here. But the liberation of Paris had already largely been completed. A week before, the men of the French forces of the interior, who for four long years, inspired by General de Gaulle, had carried on a relentless struggle against the enemy, had risen in their wrath and gone into the streets to drive out the hated invaders. We shared your joy when Paris was returned to its people and to France. Liberty had returned to one of its traditional homes, and the glory of having freed the capital belonged to Frenchmen. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation blogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. I've always been a strong believer in the importance of investing wisely. That's why I've personally invested in Legacy Precious Metals. At Legacy Precious Metals, They're not leaving your financial future to chance. They're on a mission to help you secure your financial future post-retirement. In partnership with them, I'm thrilled to announce the launch 
of the Newt Gingrich contract with America Coin. This limited edition coin is made of one ounce of 99.99% fine silver, commemorating the historic moment when, against all odds, we balanced the budget for the last time in U.S. history. This coin isn't just an investment. It's a piece of our nation's history. And now you can own it. As the holiday season approaches, it's the perfect gift. You can purchase yours today by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Eisenhower now is sitting there in November. Patton's gone as far as he can go because they can't get him any more supplies. Montgomery's made his great bold lunge and failed. They've all got to take a deep breath, and they've got to think about what to do next and rebuild their supplies and hopefully open up the great port of Rotterdam. While they're doing that, Hitler decides, taking a page really out of Frederick the Great, who was hopelessly outnumbered and launched a winter campaign that shocked all of his opponents and saved Prussia, Hitler decided he could do the same thing. And so he very carefully pulled together the last great combat army that the Germans would have. And all through November, he was funneling people into Western Germany, Belgium, and preparing a great offensive. He was further helped because the weather went bad. And back then, we had aircraft that were basically daytime aircraft. If the weather got really bad and you had really a lot of fog or a lot of cloud cover, a lot of rain, our capacity to use air power dropped dramatically. And air power was probably our biggest single advantage over the Germans. So suddenly, they're able to fight in an environment where they don't have American and British air power hitting them every morning. And they surprise us. Eisenhower had moved a very tired division into a sector that became known as the Battle of the Bulge, because the German offensive created a bulge in the Allied lines. And Eisenhower put this tired division, undertrained, and really just needing to recuperate at exactly the point that we get hit by the Germans. One of the great examples of Eisenhower's leadership is that when the offensive began, and it began to be obvious that this was a big all-out German offensive, Eisenhower asked all of his major leaders to meet at Verdun. When they got there, he said, we will have no frowns, we will have only smiles. The Germans have come out in the open and given us a chance to destroy them. And therefore, we should look on this as an enormous opportunity. They went around the room. Montgomery, in his usual fashion, pointed out that the way the attack was developing, there would be a number of American divisions that were north of the German attack and would be cut off from Bradley's ability to control them. So Montgomery would be glad to help save the Americans. 
the way he said it pissed off everybody. But in fact, it was the right solution, and Eisenhower knew that. So Eisenhower irritated one of his closest friends, General Bradley, by doing what was militarily the right thing to do. He gave a significant number of American divisions to Montgomery to coordinate until they could defeat the offensive and reestablish a firm line across the region. He then turns to Patton and he says, how soon can you be moving? And Patton says, 48 hours. This is the one example that validates everything Eisenhower had done to save Patton. And Eisenhower says, come on, George, get serious. How soon can you turn and move? And Patton says, look, I intuited that since the German army had not launched a winter offensive since the 1770s, that this was a winter offensive. And I told my guys to design three plans, depending on where you want me to get to. And they have three plans, and I can call them on the phone from here and use any one of three words, and they will at that moment launch the troops towards breaking off the Germans. And it was true. Patton had literally thought through. The second he heard what was going on, he said, this is a full-out German offensive. And his guys were good enough as planners that literally he could call them and they could pivot the entire Third Army north and drove to cut off the Germans and to save the American forces at Bastogne. And it's really one of the amazing command activities of the war because it took enormous effort to take an army that's totally lunging into the east, pivot it, and have it go on basically a 90-degree turn and go straight north. So as this all happens, the weather starts to clear, the air power comes back, the Germans get defeated. There's a lot of shock because people sort of psychologically thought the war was over. And then there was talk about the boys coming home by Christmas, etc. And in fact, of course, the Germans were still fighting. They would fight until May 8th. As we broke out and began to move east into Germany, we ran across very tough fighting, particularly in a place called the Hürtgen Forest, where they tenaciously, sort of yard by yard and foot by foot, tried to stop us. And we began to run into the real politics that would precede the Cold War, because the Soviets wanted to be as far west as possible. Now, Eisenhower's view as a military guy was, this is for the politicians to sort out. I don't want to lose a single American taking some area that we're not going to keep. So Eisenhower, for example, was deeply opposed to going to Berlin because he recognized that Berlin was an enormous city and the Russians lost an amazing number of people conquering Berlin. And he didn't particularly want to go east too far into Czechoslovakia because that was already agreed to be in the Soviet zone of influence. So Eisenhower is looking to a post-Cold War where we will try to find some way to collaborate with the Soviets. Patton actually would like to go fight the Soviets. And so he wanted to drive his troops as far into Czechoslovakia and as far into Austria as possible. He would have been quite cheerful about encountering them. Eisenhower imposed pretty strict controls on Patton, worked to understand the Soviets and to work with them. And on May 8th, the Germans surrendered and the war was over. It's a very short message from Eisenhower that says, mission accomplished. If you look at Eisenhower's way of signaling that the war was over, and then go look at MacArthur and Tokyo Bay, you get some real sense of the difference in the two personalities. Eisenhower then faced occupying Germany, which people tend to forget was a much more 
challenging thing than we thought it would be. We arrested 85,000 Germans the first year in denazification. He was truly horrified when he visited the first concentration camp. He wanted every American soldier to go through these camps. He wanted all the Germans who lived within 20 or 30 miles of these camps to go through the camps. He was sickened by it. He was enraged by it. And I think he never quite thought about the Germans the same way after he'd seen these camps. And he did everything he could to get medical assistance in to help people. But at the same time, he was subordinate to President of the United States and the political system. So when we had agreed, for example, to turn Russian prisoners of war back over to the Russians, people who had been captured by the Germans, even though we knew they would virtually all be sent to Siberia, and the ones who weren't sent to Siberia would probably be shot, that was the agreement. So we did it. There were times when Eisenhower did things he didn't necessarily like or agree with, but he was in the chain of command. He understood the importance of sustaining the chain of command and the importance of obeying the commander-in-chief, which had become Harry Truman by that stage. I think that what's noteworthy here in wrapping up Ike in World War II is the degree to which Eisenhower's capacity for growing just continues for his whole life. He's somebody who studied, listened, thought about it, absorbed it, moved to the next phase of his activities. I think that he went back home to replace George Catlett Marshall as chief of staff of the army. Eisenhower had very little sense of himself as a central figure, but somebody had to be the supreme commander of Allied powers. So was Eisenhower. I think his attitude always was to do his duty and to serve his country. He comes out of the war, I think, as probably the most popular American military leader, partially because of the size of the American military in Europe, partially because of his sunny smile, partially because of the belief that he had enormous good sense and that he'd made relatively few mistakes. In that setting, he pivoted and decided that was over. After he got done being the chief of staff of the army, he retires from active service. He writes a terrific book, which I recommend to everybody, called Crusade in Europe, which gives you a real flavor of how he thought about things. He also shows you how clever he is because Congress passes a law which exempts that book from any taxes. And as a result, the income from that book is enough that it enables him to buy the farm at Gettysburg. He then goes to serve as president of Columbia University in December of 1948, but he's always a consultant back to the first secretary of defense and then to the army. He's brought back in 49 in informal capacity to serve as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under this brand new Department of Defense that had just been created. The Korean War begins on June 25th, 1950, and Eisenhower is called back from Columbia, and President Truman and the 12 NATO nations ask him to become supreme commander of the Allied forces in Europe. Montgomery also comes back, and the two of them create the North Atlantic Treaty Organization designed to stop the Soviets from trying to invade Western Europe. And I suspect that the joint prestige of Eisenhower and Montgomery by itself was enough to slow down the Soviets 
and make them think long and hard about exactly what they were doing. So at this point, Eisenhower is at the end of the military phase of his life. He is about to enter a political phase. And in the next episode of The Immortals, I will talk about Eisenhower and the whole way in which he gets drawn into politics and having turned it down in 1948 and the way in which he plays an enormous role both in the Republican Party in the country and as a leader around the world. There are very few people who've had the total cumulative impact that Ike had from his military days, his political days, and you take them all together, being both the Supreme Commander in Europe, five-star general, President of the United States. There's a lot to learn and a lot that's worth studying. You can read more about President Dwight David Eisenhower on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Sloan. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. Please email me with your questions at gingrich360.com questions. I'll answer them in future episodes. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very of all slow. The, of all the options. In spite of me. <laughs> like, what did we do? It's so slow. Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you.